it's so nice to be together with you. I, I don't feel like I get enough time with my AMC family. Well, it's so nice to be here. Well, I'd like to talk tonight about just this little tiny topic, um, emptiness. Yeah, just a little thing. Uh, <clears throat> yes, it's ironic because I'm, I want to talk about something that can't be talked about. How can you say anything about something that isn't anything? Uh, how can you talk about something that's everything? Well, this is emptiness. Even even using the word emptiness is is tripping us up right away. It's like trying to talk about infinity, or trying to talk about the edge of the universe. What does this stuff mean? You know, it's it's. Words just don't go there, but I'll try anyway. I'll try. And I'm not the first one to try. Uh, our central core sutra in Zen is the Heart Sutra. And the Heart Sutra is about emptiness. And usually in a Zendo, the Heart Sutra hangs above the altar right there. Our uh, Zendo here has a window instead of the Heart Sutra, which I think is a really great Heart Sutra. What, what more would you, uh, could you say about emptiness than a window? <clears throat> but it is the Core Sutra of Zen because it points directly to awakening. And the Heart Sutra says, see, it's like this. So I want to show you another idea of what how we else, someone else is trying to show this. I'm going to share something on my screen here. And this is a sculpture at the Asian Art Museum in Seattle. Uh, and it's from the 14th century in China. It's wood, and it's about life size. And it's a sculpture of the moment that this monk saw through. And I just love it. I'm going to actually zoom in a little bit on, its, on this sculpture's face. But that face, like, oh, oh, the moment of awakening, the moment of seeing emptiness. I think that's really cool. I think it's lovely. So the Heart Sutra talks about emptiness in a really intimate way, actually. Avalokiteshvara is telling his friend Shariputra about his moment of awakening, that moment when Avalokiteshvara saw through to emptiness. So there's, there's a couple of translations I'm going to reference here, and I'm not going to try and do the whole Heart Sutra. That's, it's too big, but I'm going to focus in on just a couple of parts of it. And this first translation is Tai's latest translation of it. And so it starts like this, Avalokiteshvara, while practicing deeply with the insight that brings us to the other shore, suddenly discovered that all the five skandhas are equally empty. And with this realization, he overcame ill-being. So there's a little bit of Zen jargon in there that I want to talk about that's not maybe obvious. It's this word, the skandhas. And it's a Sanskrit word, and it means aggregates. It means 
things that are made of other things. So for instance, my driveway is a skanda because it's, it's an aggregate. It looks like a solid thing, but it's actually made out of gravel and sand and cement and water and a chemical reaction that turns it into this solid appearing thing that doesn't look like it's made of other things. It just looks like it's solid. And that's what a skanda is. It refers to these things that we think are solid and separate, but are actually not what we think. They're made up of something else. One way to say that is that skandhas are things we think of as full of a, self, a separate self-identity. But as we'll see in this sutra, they really are empty of exactly that. And classically in, in Buddhism, the five skandhas that, that talk, talked about in the sutras are form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. So that's what that word skanda refers to. Okay, it goes on. Listen, Shariputra, says Avalokiteshvara. This body itself is emptiness. And emptiness itself is this body. This body is not other than emptiness, and emptiness is not other than this body. And the same is true of feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. Okay, so that's come down to us through 2,500 years, and it sounds a little bit dry. But just imagine, actually, Avalokiteshvara, what Avalokiteshvara was saying to Shariputra. He was saying, listen, Shariputra, listen. You know, if they were alive today, I can imagine that Avalokiteshvara would have texted Shariputra a dozen OMGs and, and a bunch of fireworks emojis. You know, this is a big deal. And Avalokita is excited and wants his friend to know about this. Um, I, I had a similar experience when I, when I, after two years of being with my first koan, finally passed through that koan at a retreat. And I remember coming back into the meditation hall and doing a little dance in front of Mike. I was so happy. It was like, like my, listen, Mike, you know, it was, it was something similar to that. So I can really relate to Avalokiteshvara saying to Shariputra, listen, listen. So he was saying to Shariputra, this body itself is emptiness. Avalokiteshvara's very body, this thing he thought was solid and permanent and his was actually empty. It was empty of solidity, of permanence, and of any kind of a separate self-identity. I can imagine he was pretty excited when that happened. But even more than that, he tells Sariputra, not only is this body empty, but emptiness is this body. His body is an expression of emptiness. And his very body is intimately connected to everything. Imagine having that realization. 
not just as words I'm saying, but actually that's your realization. Wow. And there's more. He saw that even more than his body being emptiness, everything is empty, not just him, but all his body, his feelings, his mental formations, his consciousness, his perceptions, it's all empty. This is hard to put your mind around. This is really hard to put your mind around. Um, but there's a, there's a good analogy that I like, that I, that I learned from Kathleen Dowling Singh. And it, it's, it goes like this. Um, consider a whirlpool that's in a stream. And you're looking at the stream, and you see water flowing, and there's a rock in the water, and just past the rock, is a whirlpool. And the whirlpool seems solid. It seems like it has an identity. It's there. It's not the water. It's not the rock. It's the whirlpool. And there it is in the stream. But in reality, that whirlpool is nothing other than the molecules of water flowing down the stream that have interacted with the rock and are current in such a way that they go past the rock and they spin once or twice around and then continue on their way. And it's a stream of molecules doing this, a stream over and over and over again. It gives the illusion that the whirlpool is a separate self. It's, it's solid somehow. But in reality, it's only water molecules flowing past the rock doing a little turn and flowing on. It's made of different water molecules every moment. It has no separate self-identity. So this is what Avalokiteshvara saw about himself. He has no separate self-identity. He is empty of that. And as it says in the sutra, with this realization, he overcame all fear. In other words, he woke up. When you see that you are everything, what could you possibly fear? We put the Heart Sutra over the altar, uh, not because it's some kind of a sports trophy. You know, it's not like this thing in the trophy case that says, Avalokiteshvara won enlightenment in 527 BC. You know, it's not like he, he won the prize. It's there because it's a finger pointing us at the moon. And Avalokiteshvara is telling us, you too can see this. You too can realize this. And so it's there to inspire us. It's not there to show us that Avalokiteshvara is somehow different than you and me. He wasn't. He's just like you and me. Shariputra was just like you and me. Okay. <clears throat> how do we actually put this into practice? How do we, how do we use this? Uh, we we come to this 
realization ourselves when we find ourselves able more and more to embrace paradox. We're usually imprisoned by one of two ideas, the idea of being and the idea of non-being. Those ideas imprison us, and most of us are caught by the idea of being, the idea that we are a separate self. And there's a really good reason that we're caught by that, because this is our ego's point of view. Our ego's point of view is that we have been born from nothing, and therefore we're not deeply connected to anything or anyone. And our ego believes that our, our main job, therefore, is to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. Kind of Kind of shallow, our ego. And to do this, we want to be desperately in control of what's going on. We want to know about it. We want to manipulate it. We want to control it. But there's a real problem. There's something we can't control. And that thing is death. And our ego knows about that. And it's frightened to death about death. So that fear of death becomes the driving force of our life because we don't want to be extinguished and return to the nothing we thought we came from. So this is how we get caught in the idea of being. We get caught in the idea of being because we think we have to preserve ourselves from annihilation. And it's very hard for us to let go of that idea because we think that a letting go of it means we will succumb to annihilation. So there's a good reason why we're imprisoned by this idea of being. But Avalokiteshvara showed us that we can break through this delusion and see the emptiness inside, that we are not actually a separate self, that instead of a separate self, we are actually an inter-being. Not a separate being, but an inter-being. But we can also get caught by the idea of being an interbeing, of being a non-being, another way of saying it. And this is a particular problem of Zen practitioners. <laughs> you know, because we start to have insights and we start to really taste this idea that we are not a separate self. And then we want to catch on to that. We want to swing from one extreme to the other. We don't want to hold the paradox of being both of being and an interbeing. We want to be one or the other. It's a great uh, story about that. There's several stories about that in the Zen uh, history and literature. One of them is uh, a monk has one of these experiences where he sees through to, to the um, ultimate dimension where he sees that he is an interbeing rather than a separate self. And so he runs to the master and says, Master, Master, I'm, I'm nothing, I'm empty. I'm empty. And the master reaches out and he grabs him by the nose and he twists his nose. And he says, then what hurts? Yeah. So our practice asks us to live the paradoxical reality that we're both a separate self and not a self at all. We're both a being and an interbeing. 
we're universal, and we are particular. I do a practice every morning that reminds me of this. And you might want to do it too. So every morning before I sit, I bow to the altar and I do three prostrations. The first prostration, I bow to the Buddha nature, that non-self, that inter-being, the universal nature that we all share. I bow to that first. I touch that in me. And with my next prostration, I bow to the Dharma. The Dharma is the myriad of individual expressions of that Buddha nature. It's the tree. It's the carpet. It's the ant. It's me. It's you. We're all dharmas, expressions of the Buddha nature. And then with the third prostration, I bow to the Sangha, the community that practices being both of those things. The community that reminds us that we are both of those things. It's a lovely way to start the day. I find that when I don't do that, I forget. I forget. I get wrapped up in my self-centered nature. And I forget. It really helps to practice in that way. So I'd like to actually give you another uh, suggestion for some practices. Um, because a, a kind of a three-centered practice has been handed down to us to help us see what Avalokiteshvara saw. And this three-centered practice helps prepare us in three different ways so that we too can have that insight. And this three-centered practice invites us to do three things in a particular order. And that order is first our heart, and then our mind, and then our body. So I'll talk about each one of those. The first practice is our heart. And this is the practice of generosity. Our separate self is stingy. It's really stingy. It can't easily see that something that benefits others also benefits me. Right? It's me versus you, not me and you. It wants more for me and the heck with you. Right? So we are, we are stingy. Our hearts are stingy. So we practice generosity. And historically, generosity is the first practice offered to a new Buddhist student so that our self-centered heart can start to soften its grip. So this is the first practice, the practice of generosity. Generosity prepares our heart to feel interbeing, prepares our heart to release the grasp on self-interest 
so that we're prepared to feel interbeing. That's generosity, the first step. The second step is to practice with our mind. And it is, it's, the, it's the art of softening our mind, just like we softened our heart. So we can begin to transform our understanding of the world. And we do that with sutras and with gatas. Most of our mental formations are formed in childhood. When we're two, three, four, five years old. And our childish minds are more self-centered. It's just the way it is. It's nothing wrong with being a child, nothing wrong with having a self-centered child mind. But we create most of our mental formations during those years. And so if we don't have a way to see them, to clarify our mind, then we will continue to have a tight and closed mind instead of one that's soft and open. So sutra study helps reorient our minds. The words of the Buddha and the other writers of the sutras that have been passed down to us show us different ways of perceiving and thinking than we knew from our childhood mental formations. They're radically different oftentimes. When we read these sutras, like the Heart Sutra, we look at it and we go, what the heck is this saying? It's so different that it's hard to grasp. So we need to make a practice of softening our mind so we can find new ways of perceiving and thinking. In some ways, we can think about it like a sutra says, helping our minds grow up. You know, if we leave our mind stuck in its childhood state, it won't grow up. Just the same way that practicing generosity helps our heart grow up and mature. So sutras have that function and gatas have a similar function. Um, Gatas remind us always to see interbeing in our everyday activities. For instance, uh, the gata for brushing our teeth. Now, before we say the gata, we simply go in there to brush our teeth so that, I don't know, maybe we don't have bad breath or maybe when we get to uh, our, get our teeth cleaning, we don't have to be embarrassed because the uh, hygienist says, oh boy, you've not been doing a very good job. So we, we might brush our teeth for these very kind of selfish being reasons. But imagine what doing the gata each time you brush your teeth might do to change that. Brushing my teeth and rinsing my mouth, I vow to speak truthfully and lovingly. You know, how does that change our perception of brushing my teeth? All of a sudden, brushing my teeth goes from, instead of preventing me from feeling shame, saying, oh, this can open me to be able to be truthful and loving in my speech. Wow. That's a different way of thinking. I always thought when my mom made me brush my teeth, I'm supposed to go in there and grumble and go. (laughs) Now I get to say, oh, ah, helping me to speak truthfully and lovingly. (laughs) 
So sutras and gatas prepare our mind to understand interbeing. Just like generosity prepares our heart to feel interbeing. Let's turn to the body, the third one. Once our heart and mind are softened sufficiently and open sufficiently, then we're ready to meditate. We're ready to experience emptiness with our heart and our mind and our body, in our body. So we take the cushion with the intention to be with things as they are. Our heart is no longer lost in feelings or emotions. Our mind is not spinning stories about the past or the future. And our body is willing to be still and to know. To know. There's a reason Avalokiteshvara, I think, said, this body is emptiness. He didn't say these feelings are emptiness. This mind is emptiness, these perceptions. He said this body is emptiness. Because I imagine that he experienced it in his body. He knew it in his body. And our body is so trustworthy. It speaks the truth in a way our mind and our heart don't. It's where the work of realization and transformation get done. I know I'm suffering, not because I feel the anger in my heart so much, or because I can see the mind stories that I'm ruminating about and all the drama. No, I know that I'm suffering because I know the twisting in my gut that tells me this is suffering. And meditation is the art of remaining with that twisting and that however your body experiences it until there's understanding. Until there's understanding. And where there's understanding, there's transformation. An earlier translation of this from Thich Nhat Hanh, of the Sutra, um, doesn't use the term, the insight that brings us to the other shore. He uses the term, perfect understanding. So the first line is, Avalokita, while moving in the deep course of perfect understanding. And this is what these, this three-part practice is pointing us towards, perfect understanding. The deep course of perfect understanding is an open heart, a clear mind, and a still, attentive body. We call this the prajna paramita, the deep course of perfect understanding. So when you read the Heart Sutra. Remember, 
that Avalokiteshvara and his pal Shariputra are just like you and me. Just like you and me. Just like you and me, they showed up for practice day after day. Again and again. Sitting in confusion and not knowing and wondering and suffering and all these things we sit in. But they just kept showing up. Uniting their heart and their mind and their body. And we can do this too. And I trust that one day, just like Avalokita, the bottom will drop out of our buckets and we will laugh at the emptiness of it all. And you'll turn to your friend and you'll say, listen, Sandra, listen, Gail, listen, Hetty, this body is emptiness. Emptiness is this body. <sighs> You're just like Avalokiteshvara. 